KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, Flashpoint fam, it's me, your host, Cherry Gregg. I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for all of your support during 2020. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for all of you guys who left reviews. I want to express my gratitude and wish you the best Hanukkah, Christmas, and Kwanzaa. See you on the other side. Medical professionals say it's not safe to travel and many families are canceling Christmas. What's more important is my life. I want to be safe and secure. Coronavirus isolation during the holidays and beyond. Human beings were wired for connection, were wired for contact. Ways to cope until the vaccine becomes widespread. Then the achievement gap between the haves and have-nots is growing during the pandemic. Four or five families would come together and they said, we're going to hire a teacher. Many of our families can't afford to do that. A West Philadelphia effort to bring equity to distance learning. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is coronavirus isolation. Millions of Americans have been practicing social distancing and have spent long periods of time in lockdown. Roughly 35 million Americans live alone. So how do you cope with the loneliness of the pandemic, especially during the holidays? We have two guests. First up is Dr. Eric Spiegel, a licensed psychologist with the Attune Philadelphia Therapy Group. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me on the show, Sherry. How serious is the issue of coronavirus isolation, so to speak? It's really serious, although, you know, like so many things, it depends on the person. But look, you know, human beings, we're wired for connection. We're wired for contact. We're meant to be social, relational, interpersonal beings. And it's hard to just be on your own. It's palpable and Philly, like that energy of you've got restaurants shutting down and you've got these restrictions and it's colder and it's darker and people are just more on their own and more on edge. So if you're living by yourself, it's not just the being alone part. It's the sense of really feeling people kind of pulling away that I think brings up a lot of feelings. Yeah, because the winter blues is a real thing. Yeah. And you put the coronavirus blues on top of it and it, it, it can make it pretty bad. That's a lot of blues. Because <laughs> being lonely by itself isn't always a red flag or a bad thing. I'm all about relationships and specifically relationships with yourself. Loneliness, it's, it's all about your relationship to being lonely. Some people, especially introverts, might really like it. You pick up a book you've been meaning to read, you, you curl up in your blanket, and then there are other people where that you, you're told to do that, and that just feels like you've been locked up somewhere. You know, you just want to be out in the world, you want to be connecting with people, seeing people, doing things. And I think for people who are extroverts or people who are more active and kind of like being out and doing stuff, that's particularly hard. And so when does it become a problem? Because this issue keeps coming up. And now that people have been told to kind of hunker down and it's the holidays and you're afraid of getting the coronavirus. What I really encourage people to do is to kind of look out for the warning signs. Unfortunately, too often, 
you know, I'm getting contacted when people are like really in a full-blown depression or they're having paralyzing anxiety. But I think there are, there are warning signs before that. You know, you just find like that you're starting to feel edgy or snappy or irritable, um, or you start to just feel like you have less motivation than you typically do. You know, you're having a harder time getting out of bed. You feel like, hey, what's the point of all this? I mean, I think those are the kinds of warning signs that, you know, it's starting to get to you. And I think that that's a really good time either to reach out for help, you know, with somebody who has a mental health background or to just do some of your own self-help, but to just take it seriously. I mean, I think that that's kind of like the first thing to kind of be looking for. Mm -hmm. And I think that most people, I know I coped pretty well, especially because you could go on long walks, you could meet up with people outside and it really wasn't that bad if you're a gregarious social person. So what are some tips that people can kind of like, put coping structures in place as they, as we go into the winter months. <laughs> there is a lot people can do. And that's the good news. And the really good news here, as bad as this is, this is not March or April of 2020. Like, yeah, yeah it was warmer back then. And so you, you could kind of get out and do a little bit more. But the thing about March and April was people had no idea you know, what, what the trajectory was of this thing. And now it's like, okay, the vaccines are starting to get out there. We know it's a slow process, but we can start to see that, you know, the end on the horizon. And I, I mean, on the one hand, that can be a little bit dangerous because I think sometimes people can make bad decisions. And it's like, look, you know, you, you don't want to feel like you came this far if you haven't gotten COVID yet, and, and now you're going to get it. So it's like, okay, let, let's make good decisions, be smart, be safe. But the thing is, the, the critical difference between now and then is you don't have that same degree of uncertainty. So I think the first thing in coping, Sherry, is like, okay, we, we have some sense of where we have to get to. And actually that's the first coping tactic is you can say to yourself, look, I've got three months till it's warmer out. And I've probably got, I mean, six, seven months max until I know I can get a vaccine if I want to. Then you kind of start to do a reframe and you say, okay, what, what do I want to, what do I want this time to be? I'm going to learn some new skill. You know, I'm going to go online. I'm going to learn how to play a musical instrument. I'm going to learn how to do some art or, you know, like they, they actually, they want to go and learn some skill, you know? And, and I mean, you, you have the, the, the wealth of the internet available to, if you want to do that. And then I think some people, it's much more of like a kind of a being kind of thing. It's like, all right, you know, I want to kind of learn more about myself, maybe like do some meditation or do learn yoga or, or like kind of just go on more of like a spiritual journey. But I think the important thing is like for people to recognize like, Hey, you've got options out there. And you know, what do you want to say you did with this time? Kind of commit to it and use this time for good. Absolutely. And it's really important. You know, when you said that, it made me think of something, try, try to make the goals like contained tangible ones, right? So you're not, you're not going to learn the Spanish language, but maybe you say, hey, I want to go to Cuba and I want to be able to say a couple of basic sentences to strangers that I meet. So you, you focus on doing that. Just try to make it something tangible. And then, then it re- you'll really feel like, hey, I accomplished something in this, in this time period. You know, are there any other tips? So I think one of the tips is to kind of draw other people in on being silly 
and being creative. Mm. And, you know, one of the greatest gifts that children have that adults forget is how to be playful. So, you know, try to just kind of cultivate a sense of curiosity and fun. Anything where you can be alone, but be with other people and just kind of be playful together. Maybe it's like you all play a game together and you've got the same game, but you're kind of looking at it on a screen or something like that. But just, you know, just trying to see how you can kind of be creative. Um, You know, obviously like we're in the holiday season, you know, so maybe it's like um, just kind of opening up presents together on Zoom or kind of, you know, doing some kind of shared activity together. The news is, I mean, th- I mean, there is this vaccine. Coronavirus blues is going to hopefully be a thing of the past. Yes. Uh, and we can see the light uh, at the end of a tunnel. If you can reframe this as an opportunity instead of a threat and say, look, you know, hey, what, what do I want to kind of accomplish in my relationship with myself? What do I want to learn about myself? Then, then you can really turn this into something that can be a positive experience that you can look back on when this does pass and say, hey, you know, I'm really glad that I had that opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Spiegel. Next up is Frederica Meister. She's a Philadelphia-based writer whose recent article, Eight Months on the Corona Coaster, documents her life as a single person living alone during the pandemic. Frederica, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. Your story resonated so much with me. Before we dive into life during the pandemic, what was your life pre-pandemic? I'm from New York and I lived there decades. And I was just getting into Philadelphia. I'd only been here eight, nine months when the pandemic pandemic struck. And I was really getting into Philadelphia. I wasn't getting lost anymore, um, which had been a constant before. Um, I had found a writing group. I found a gym. I was starting to make friends. I mean, I have a few friends here, but I did not have the group I had in New York. Um, And I was just starting to, you know, have a group. And I mean, I always went on walks. I was so into discovering the nooks and crannies of Philadelphia. And then I guess it was March 12th, I think it was, it just ended. So in a way it was a double whammy for me. Um, I mean, I'm alone in Philadelphia, but I'm alone because I don't have that social network that I had in New York. But thanks to Zoom and email and phone, I had two groups. The few friends I have in Philly and then my Was it like immediate or was it sort of as the pandemic dragged on, you saw things change? Well, it was immediate and yes, it evolved. Um, It was different every day. In the beginning, I was um, doing remarkably well because I'm basically a very anxious, control free kind of person and uh, you cannot control a pandemic. And I was doing really well. You know, I had strategies, I was calling up friends and I was reaching out to people. I was doing exercises at home and I felt like I had a life at least a little bit. And it was sort of, maybe it was because of the novelty and I was also writing up a storm more than I had written before the pandemic. And I was just so amazed that I was not anxious. I mean, there were moments of anxiety. I would get chills all of a sudden. I was sure I had COVID. It never was. I was in a very good place. And even I could tell because I was writing, that's usually a sign to me that internally I'm doing okay emotionally. And I was also sleeping. I have the worst sleeping history I think of every anyone I know. I sleep for an hour, then I wake up, I sleep for two hours. And sometimes I don't go back to sleep. I live on very little sleep. And it's a good thing I have energy or... I'd be like a zombie all the time. 
Um, and my sleep was inter uninterrupted. Um, it was amazing. I was sleeping like a baby, which was a totally new experience to me. And then, well, that was in the beginning. Um, I had written um, an article, I guess, in October that talked about how well I was doing and, you know, how I had faith that it was going to end sooner than later. And, you know, and I, you know, Philadelphia was great. Everybody was wearing masks and we were going to conquer this. And then um, the second piece, which you referred to, um, was written in October and everything seemed to change. I hit a wall. I was experiencing like free floating blahs, um, called them the Corona blues. And I didn't know what was ailing me. It was just, I stopped writing. My sleep was back to being sporadic. I think I was a little bored. And my discussions with people, they were just about COVID and they were becoming less and less. It seemed that people weren't reaching out as much. And I think people were stuck. And every time I talked to somebody, they said, yeah, they were depressed. And these are people who were not, who didn't have the tendency towards depression. And they finally understood what I had been going through, my anxiety all these years. It just seemed widespread. And also, um, I was feeling angry too, because that was the time of um, people were, started not wearing masks. They started becoming politicized. And then it became very clear that the federal administration was going to do nothing. And that was infuriating. And it was George Floyd, the civil unrest. It was everything. It was like, this was not the United States I wanted it to be. And yeah. yeah. And you do all of that at home. You had to live through all yeah. of this at home alone. Yeah. And it really, it really got to me. And I just got to the point where I was tired of woe is me and wallowing and self-pity because that's what happened. I started, I could tell I was starting to spiral downward. And I said, I got to do something. And little by little, I mean, it took time, but um, by that, um, at that period, my gyms had closed. Oh, but then they reopened. So I start, they were offering Zoom classes. And I said, I was resistant in the beginning to a Zoom class. So I started taking Zoom classes and I felt I had contact with the human race again. It was great. Plus I was moving. Um, you know, I had to do something because I've been eating a lot. You know, that's yeah. what people who live alone do. They tend to raid the refrigerator at night. You kind of have talked about the roller coaster, Corona coaster, mm -hmm. you called it. Because so much happened to the country and to the world during this time. And do you think there was a lesson you learned in all of this? Oh, I've learned lots of lessons because the pandemic has had some side effects that have been beneficial. I had a lot of time for self-reflection and I really realized that I need people. And I've always been the type who doesn't reach out. I'm supposed to be strong. I don't need anybody. And this has taught me that I really need people. Like we are all in this together. People are, there's a gentleness going around, a kindness. I feel like I'm, I'm a better person because of the pandemic. And things that bothered me just don't bother me anymore. Yeah. And I also have learned you've got to be proactive. You cannot wallow in self-pity. Nobody can get you out of your dark hole by yourself. And that's what I started doing when I hit this, um, you know, I, I started writing again. The second article, that was the first article I wrote during that period. It was torture. It was torture writing that. I was so blocked. And, you know, I've been exercising and... Um, then I was going on some walks. I was trying to get out a little more, which I hadn't been doing. I was walking to Rittenhouse Square. And now I don't do that. Now I'm hunkered down with the surge. This no, is yeah. part of the Corona coaster, you know. 
And so you've learned to sort of pull yourself out because there was a portion of your article that you were talking about the pervasive negative thoughts that were coming in and you had to sort of deal with that. How did you swat those flies? Here's a model for you, particularly. Action alleviates anxiety. And with my anxiety, that's when the negative obsessive thoughts come in. It's all part of that anxiety syndrome. For me, I have to take action, whether that comes in the form of self-talk. I have to really talk to myself and not catastrophize. And, you know, the ras- there is a rational part of me. And that talks to that irrational side of me. And, um, you know, these things don't happen overnight, but eventually the truth comes out and I have to accept what is happening. I've always been a fighter. I fight against reality, thinking that I'm in control, that I can do something. I cannot control this pandemic. Um, What I can control are my thoughts, my feelings, um, but I... I'm at a loss. I can't control the government. I have to, the only person I control is, is myself. And that's what I try doing, fighting those negative thoughts with positive ones. And I also do a gratitude list every night. This is very important. I cannot accentuate gratitude. And believe me, in the beginning, it wasn't easy. I couldn't find anything to be grateful for. And I was only trying to come up with three things. You'd think it would be two seconds, but now it's second nature to me. Even in the throes of the worst pain I'm feeling, I can always find something to be grateful for. See a sunrise or something, or think about the people who have supported me in my life. There's always something to be grateful for. And I got to ask you this. I mean, we're in the holiday season and people are, this is when most people gather. The medical professionals have said, look, you know, because of the surge and because of what they're hoping to be. Well, to prevent another surge because of the holidays, they're saying only get together in person with people who live already live in your household. That kind of leaves people like us kind of mm-hmm. out there by ourselves. How are you planning to cope? Well, I'll tell you, I've learned to cope very well with living myself because I've done it for a while. I mean, sure, I'd like to go to a party, but I also tell myself what's more important is my life. I want to be safe and secure. I can give up one Christmas. You know, I have to, because there's too much evidence that getting together with people can call, cause COVID. I, frankly, I do not want to die. I don't know. I don't have any underlying conditions. I'm in good shape, supposedly. But you don't know. That's the thing you don't know with this virus, this killer virus, how you will react. So I'd rather be safe than sorry. I want to be here for next Christmas. Yeah. Amen to that. And so as we wrap up, I mean, this has been a very trying time for most of us. What are you looking forward to most? What I really miss is going to coffee shops and sitting there for an hour, just sipping my coffee and relaxing. That was a big part of my life in Philadelphia. That's when I really felt I became part of Philadelphia. I had my three go-to coffee shops and I really felt part of Philadelphia. And I miss that just being able to meet friends for for dinner or coffee or lunch and not have our conversation uh, revolve around COVID. That would be wonderful. And I also would like to travel and see my family. Well, here's to uh, coffee shop time and (laughs) dinners with friends minus COVID-19. Well, I want to say thank you so much to Frederica Meister for coming on Flashpoint and sharing your story. It was a thrill. Next up, the learning disparities created by the pandemic. Children were losing about at least seven months of learning time. A Philadelphia-based effort to close the achievement gap. We'll be right back. 
Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is education. A new report out by Renaissance on the impact of COVID-19 on student achievement grades 1 through 8 shows that while reading is down only a percentage point, math progress has dropped considerably. Minority students more negatively impacted. Here to discuss a local effort to combat the so-called COVID slide is Sandra Dundee Glenn. She's on the executive committee of the Philadelphia Community Stakeholders. The group recently opened a learning pod and parent resource Center in West Philadelphia. Welcome to Flashpoint, Sandra. Thank you for inviting me uh, here to talk about something that is near to dear to my heart. I ran into you at the grand opening of one of the first of these types of learning pods. For folks who have never seen this or heard of this, explain what a learning pod is and why this one specifically is so important. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, when schools all around the country closed and children had to move to this virtual learning format, meaning online, they couldn't go to their school buildings, they were basically at home, and families, parents had to take on the role of teachers. Um, This started, as you know, last March, when for the most part, the country shut down. And so millions of families were confronted with the challenge of how do we do school? And whether you were a well-to-do family, a working family, a challenged family, it wasn't easy because the job of a teacher isn't easy. And so now you had parents and caregivers who were thrust in the role, in addition to whatever else was going on, of having to figure out how to do school from home. For many children, it it wasn't working well. It was working sporadically. It was difficult to, for many children to get connected because some homes lacked internet access. And in some homes, again, even if you had the technical resources, having a child in front of a screen with no supports in terms of, okay, I didn't understand what they said in my math class. And if you don't have somebody there who can help them go through that again, the children were falling behind. On average, we saw around the country coming out of that, children were losing about at least seven months of learning time. For black and brown children, it was even worse than that. It was really about 10 months of learning that was being lost. As we approached the fall, and because the pandemic was not subsiding in many ways, school districts were deciding, again, that they could not resume full in-person instruction. Families began to say, okay, this, we can't go through another school year like this. This home-based learning, this virtual learning, it's not working. What else can we do? So parents with means began to get together and said, okay, four or five families would come together and they said, we're going to hire a teacher and we're going to put our cluster of children together. They're going to be small. It's a small group. It's a contained group. We're going to be COVID-19 safe. 
but we're going to bring in a, a full-time teacher that we're paying and do our own little private school. And they became known as pods, but they were costing, some parents were, are, are, were planning to spend like $12,000 per family for this, you know, per year for this kind of initiative, three, four, $500 a week per child. Our, many of our families can't afford to do that. So now you have this increasing inequity. If you have means, you can have your own little private school. If you don't, your children are falling further behind. And so through our Philadelphia community stakeholders, we said, well, that's an unacceptable, an unacceptable situation. What can we do from a community perspective that could help with that? And so we decided that we needed to think of a model that would be a community-based pod. And our concern was twofold. One, children were already losing time. So even if schools had resumed as normal this fall, they've already lost months of instructional time that need, needed to be made up. Families and schools couldn't do that by themselves. So we were already thinking about a way to do a supplement for what was gonna be going on in schools. But when we heard that schools were not gonna be opening in the fall, we became more concerned that children needed a safe place to do this virtual learning. And in addition to that, we needed to do something around supplementing and closing the gap. And so we were uh, blessed to be able to identify some partners, corporate partners, philanthropic partners, who made it possible for us to identify a space to do a community-based learning pod for children in grades kindergarten through five and to provide them with a support for their virtual learning. So we have instructors who are on site working with children as they go online with their school for their virtual learning. But in addition to that, these instructors are helping them with some supplemental lessons, particularly in, in math and reading to help them close the learning gap we set up a parent resource center. So if parents have questions and concerns and need help navigating some of these new situations, we have a full-time person who's working with parents. And the fourth component we added was a, um, a therapist, a behavioral health therapist who was on site with us for a set number of hours of, per week because our, our families and our children have gone through a tremendous amount of stress and trauma and anxiety uh, for a variety of readings, reasons, the pandemic, social unrest going on, and we've seen the latest uh, occurrence of that with the police killing uh, the young man, Mr. Wallace, in West Philadelphia, and that has its own impact on our children and their families. And then the ongoing kind of, uh, whether it's violence or results of this, this, the loss of jobs, illness and death in families, it's just a lot. So having that behavioral health support is important as well. What we've we've done with the with this learning pod, and it's a pilot that we want to show has some uh, has benefit, tremendous benefit to our families, and, and want to replicate that. Yeah, and so the, I know the city of Philadelphia offers access centers, which many people thought was going to be like this, where you could drop your kids off, there'd be supervision. But the difference is there, you don't get the, uh, the type of assistance and extra learning. How important is this assistance and extra learning? Well, we think it's, it's essential. You know, you've gone through school, as they say, 12 years plus, but it's built on what you did in kindergarten, first and second grade. If you did not learn to read, you couldn't be a journalist today. So the, 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 the foundational skills 
are essential. Everything else is built on that. And we're in a, in a society now where these children are going to need two years beyond high school education for the most fundamental jobs. So if they don't have the foundation of basic literacy, they're lost. And that's what's at stake. So we have kindergartners, first graders. Uh, we have a beautiful first grader that I can think of. And she's just, she's so smart. She's brilliant. But she missed half of kindergarten. So they were just beginning to do reading. And so she's now just getting her alphabet in place. And she's in first grade. She should already be reading. And so that's just one example of the kind of learning loss that is occurring. And now multiply that times the tens of thousands of children around this city. So if you were in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, those are fundamental skills that you're missing. And so when you get to middle school or you get to high school, you can't make that up. Yeah. And as we wrap up, I just want to, you know, uh, this is this is a pilot, but you want to open up more of these. And how do people sign up? How do you choose? Because even now, I mean, this 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 what 30 children for this one. Uh, Hopefully, if you can get 10 more, 300 kids. But there's so many more. Yes, exactly. Well, one, we want to be a model and it doesn't just have to be PCS that is operating, the Philadelphia community stakeholders. We would love for folks to look at this model and say, hey, we want to do this too, so that we are multiplying the impact. You know, through PCS, we we hope to have 10 sites. But if there are 10 Philadelphia community stakeholders like us hosting this, that's how we can really multiply the impact. So that's the kind of thing we're hoping to, um, to encourage. And we have a website. Uh, it's uh, www.pcslearningpods.com, uh, pcslearningpods, plural.com. And you can get more information about the initiative. There, it will, there's a link where you can also um, contribute. So, you know, we, we're very excited about the, the beginnings that we have. We love working with the children um, and we just want to be able to continue at Bible Way and see, see this again replicated in other parts of our, of our city. I want to say thank you so much to you. You can check them out at pcslearningpods.com. Thank you so much, Sandra Dungy-Glenn. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity. Thank you so much. Next up, a South Jersey group kicks off a very special toy drive. It's just a joyous, joyous time. The local effort to brighten the Christmas of Girls in Need. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and a South Jersey-based nonprofit is hosting a special type of toy drive. Here to tell us about Dolls for Daughters is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, founder of Sisterhood Incorporated the Reverend Dr. Hilda Covington. Welcome to Flashpoint. 
Thank you so much. This is quite an honor. So first of all, Dolls for Daughters, describe what it is. Well, we have the younger members of Sisterhood is we've been in in action for almost 26 years now. My niece, uh, even my daughter, they were meeting together to bring up this project, What About Our Daughters? This year, they came up with Dolls for Daughters, which uh, just tickled me because I used to love dolls when I was growing up. They will uh, donate a doll, and these dolls will get to the daughters of uh, needy families. One will put in their hand, and we're going to have some special way of presenting them. So you can send the doll, you can send a donation. It's on the website, What About your daughter. And it's been exciting. It's been exciting. It it's sounds been like it. And it sounds like you have a special love for, for women, for helping women oh and, and young girls. And because you run an organization called Sisterhood Incorporated that you've been running for more than two decades. Yeah. Tell me why you started the, the, the nonprofit. Started out in a Sunday school class. We heard a lady had needed something and we got together and we went about providing it. Um, and then we found out that generally when people had need, had needs, we weren't there. The places weren't in place to provide it. So we said we're going to start something where people are available, available. So that's how we started. And out of our, the trunks of our cars and one of our major moves was that we used to give out bag breakfasts on the corner to kids going to school. One of the things it did was we saw other needs. We saw children walking with no socks on. So then we had a sock drive. You know, you see the need. If you're going to work in the community, you've got to be in the community. And we saw these different needs. And I'm just grateful that I've been able, that this has been a part of my life, that that I've been able to um, see what is really, what it's, worth and what it's all about for me. seems like you guys have done quite a bit, um, especially during the holidays. Um, you're a Sixers hometown hero, provided over 50,000 new toys to thousands of boys and girls all over Pennsylvania, De uh, Delaware, and New Jersey, and um, have been busy doing the work. So how can people support you? They can go on website, they can call, they can volunteer to help sometimes. That's, um, you know, critical because we feel as if we're an essential service. Mm -hmm. And we are um, absolutely, we never closed during COVID. I said we didn't have to build a program. We already had a program. And you can come and you can donate, you know, whatever. You don't have to just donate dolls today. You can donate a doll anytime. Yeah. And we will see that that because it's some sometimes it's just so sad uh when they come in and you recognize that this child doesn't really have toys and things like that because we have a little play area and um uh you want to just give them whatever they get and they'll be packed filling their own bags you know and they must say put that back put that back and um but the opportunity to know that the need is there we do food at no cost. We don't ask for any ID. We do clothes at no cost. We don't ask for any ID uh, because sometimes that can be very embarrassing to yeah. people. All of us at some time may hit a low, you know, yeah. and uh, we have got to, uh, we want to be an encouragement. And in the courtroom, we advocate. Uh, it's really amazing 
because we look back and wonder how in the world uh, much yeah i'm telling you and so we do have to wrap up but i just want to make sure that we get the key points in here because people can donate dolls. I know you got you all are collecting dolls until December 20th. Which Wait, is it changed to the 22nd. We had to. Okay, so you're gonna be collecting dolls uh, until December 22nd. Right. And um, it sounds like you're gonna try to distribute dolls to how many girls? Oh, we will, 500. 500 okay. in this area. We're gonna try for 500 at each site. So in Burlington, to drop them off, it's uh, 402 York Street in Burlington. And, you know, we already have the little girls designated. And in each area, if you go on the website, you'll see the address or where you can take a donation. And then someone who loves dolls goes shopping. That's kind of me, like, you know, for for the dolls that we need that we don't have. And uh, it's just... uh, it's just a joyous, joyous time to change this around because we need to change our children's mindsets about you, yeah. you can come through better in times like this, and we should. And if I could just say this, this is one thing I saw years ago, and it made me cry. It's from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Reverend Dr. Hilda Covington. Please check them out at whataboutyourdaughters.org. They'll be collecting dolls through December 22nd. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote... Here's one from author and preacher Guillermo Maldano. Loneliness is not lack of company. Loneliness is lack of purpose. This show is produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint family, we're wishing you and those you love a very wonderful holiday season. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>